Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Samantha Politics. This is your source for global politics with a focus on lifting up the voices of women in foreign policy and national security. We have a really exciting show lined up tonight about the brewing crisis in Russia and Ukraine and two pretty top-notch guests waiting in the wings. I feel lucky and privileged to have them here, both foreign policy commentators, um, Maria Snegovaya and Natalia Antonova. But before we get to them, let's do a little bit of talking about what exactly is happening in Russia and Ukraine. So, more than 100,000 Russian troops currently are surrounding Ukraine on three sides. Even more worryingly, we've seen Putin sending in blood supplies and plasma, which are typically the things that would be used in the case of if people were to get injured and have injuries, they would need to have blood supplies. The White House has threatened sanctions against Putin's inner circle. And they've also sent uh, 3,000 troops to Eastern Europe to supposedly stabilize tensions there or support NATO. And I think it's just frankly a show of force. The UN Security Council has been meeting constantly to condemn Putin's actions and to try to negotiate. And although a recent poll claims that three, uh, that one third of Ukrainians would take up arms against Russia if Russia were to invade, the balance of forces is overwhelmingly in Russia's favor. Russia's military spending in 2020 was about $62 billion, and Ukraine's was less than a tenth of that at $5.9 billion. For the first time in over a month, Putin yesterday signaled that Russia was open to a diplomatic resolution. He's been claiming that the U.S. is trying to goad uh, Putin into an armed conflict, which is also ironic considering he's the one who has amassed troops uh, on the border. So this isn't the first time that Russia invaded Ukraine. You might remember in 2014 when Russia decided that they were going to annex Crimea. Now, this wasn't out of nowhere. What basically happened was that there was a rising discontent in Ukraine and a revolution that ousted the then president, Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych was a pro-Russian force. He was also highly corrupt. One fun fact about Yanukovych that I think is really weird is that he had an ostrich farm on his property. I still don't totally get that, and I also can't help wondering if there's any link between Yanukovych's ostrich farm and Paul Manafort's ostrich jacket, considering Paul Manafort was also implicated in Russia and Ukraine issues. You know, not trying to spread conspiracy theories here, but I just find that very interesting. Since that time, Zelensky has become the new president, who's also a Jew. Lachaim, I'm Jewish as well. And that has led to also, you know, pro uh, anti Semitic and kind of pro Jewish conspiracy theories with regards to uh, Ukraine as well that have been surfacing within Russia. Also, the US Ukrainian relationship has become a lot closer. Under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, for example, the U.S. has stepped up a lot of efforts to help Ukraine's um, ops forces, um, including with weapons, including with money, and a lot of tactical support. So that has been also something that I think we're going to talk about here with Maria. I also think it's really important, though, that we go back further if we really want to understand the conflict brewing today, which is all the way back to 1991 at the fall of the Soviet Union. At the time, it is said, and I think Maria and I are going to have a chat about this, that the U.S. made a promise to uh, Russia that 
the NATO would not expand eastward past a unified Germany. Obviously, that has not happened, and NATO, and prompted by the U.S., has all has shown very willing, uh, a, a very high willingness to absorb countries into NATO. That being said, should we deny countries that want to join NATO because we made this promise to Russia, or did we make this promise to Russia? I don't know. That's part of Putin's claim, though, is that Russia keeps expanding east, or excuse me, that NATO keeps expanding eastward, and he is terrified of Ukraine joining NATO and what that will do um, to him, to Russians, to his reputation. So I would like to bring in our first guest, Maria Snegovaya. You may have seen her recent article in Foreign Policy magazine that explicated as to why Putin is acting now. And we're going to dive into a lot of those things uh, tonight. She's also a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center and a, and a visiting fellow at the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at GW. She's a member of Ponar's Eurasia. She has a PhD in political science from Columbia University, and she's published widely on party politics, political behavior, and political economy, uh, especially, and the last time I brought Maria on, we talked a lot about the democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe and why exactly that was happening. Uh, she has been re referred to in also the New York Times, Bloomberg, The Economist. I saw her in Vox this week. I'm pretty sure she probably has about 20 more news channels that she's been on since we've talked last, because uh, since the Russia crisis has, has come up. She's also collaborated with Brookings, Eurasia, and Freedom House, and she is amazing and awesome, and I'm super excited to bring her on. And thank you very much, Samantha. If I may jump in, I also visited the ostrich farm by Yanukovych. Oh my Actually, gosh, so. tell me about it. What did it look like? <laughs> well, it was uh, already in the, during the time. Right now, this old estate by Yanukovych is converted into a museum. The ostriches were the, the best part of it, though. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but when, so you were at the museum or you were at it when there were ostriches there? There were ostriches still there. And the oh. farm is still there, but they're showing it to the tourists. Oh my gosh, that is I so think the ostriches are doing better now that they they also feel liberated like the rest of Ukraine. <laughs> were they part of the revolution? Uh, they were holding signs like, down with Yanukovych. <laughs> I'm sure it was deep inside they were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know, you know, you've, you've been in high demand and have an incredibly busy schedule, so I'm honored to have you here. So, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so, you know, I think the big question that everyone's wondering now, and you talked about this a little bit in your piece on foreign policy, is why is Putin doing this now? Why was it not in 2015 or 16 or 2018 or 2020? Um, what, why exactly is this happening now? And maybe I know you have a lot of different kind of hypotheses, so I'm thinking let's go through them one at a time. So the first thing you mentioned is Russia's decline in leverage over Ukraine. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think it's very important for, uh, I mean, as long as we assume that Putin is rational, right? Because there's a, little, a different stream of thought that thinks that he's just completely is uh, also 
out out of his mind and i know that even some of the policy community sometimes some members of the policy community sometimes consider that right unfortunately that assumption uh that he spent too much time at his bunker where he's hiding from coronavirus and haven't not seen anybody uh just has came up with completely uh crazy ideas about the world order uh those assumptions undermines our capacity as analysts to analyze and predict his behavior right so that is an important uh, sort of limitation as long as so this is an article that acts on the assumption of uh, Putin's continued rationality. And frankly, it's not like he fundamentally undermined or changed uh, the demands that he's done before. So the current pattern of demands of requests to NATO, uh, the disagreements with the West, is consistent with what we've seen before, except that it's true that Russia has become even more provocative and even bold, uh, if you will. Can I stop you for one second? So what have sure. been Russia's main demands that are continue to be you know, on the on the drawing board today. Well, broadly speaking, right, the new Yalta, so to speak, the Russia Russia wants to revise uh, the world order. It wants the United States essentially to allow Russia some sort of control uh, agency over what it deems to be its own region of responsibility. Mm. Uh, that is the post-Soviet space, or uh, in other words all the countries of the former countries of the Soviet and communist space that didn't have chance to flee to NATO, essentially. They didn't uh, manage to save and to rescue themselves by joining NATO. Those are the countries uh, that Putin holds claims to have a certain degree of leverage, um, like more less limited, say, by the rules, uh, formal rules that currently guide the international uh, space. And that has been cons his consistent demand in that sort of universe, in that particular region, uh, Ukraine has a special status. It's been on Putin's mind until um, at least since 2003. Mm -hmm. So that's a fairly long story. I'm sure Natalia, our, the other guest today, will be able to, to uh, tell the audience all about it. So in that case, he's consistent. The problem is that Ukraine has consistently failed to deliver to his wishes. And mm -hmm. frankly, in a lot of ways, he appears to be extremely frustrated uh and almost obsessed uh with ukraine mm. one of their one of the indicators uh we saw this summer when he published i think it was in july uh, 2021 this notorious article on uh, historical unity between uh ukrainians and russians and here i want to have to point out that i actually studied ukrainian history uh before for essentially one of the research projects i've been doing and i spent quite a lot of time uh, in western ukraine and Lviv. well i can claim with all scholarly responsibility that ukraine and russia Ukrainians and Russians are not uh, the same nation. But Putin thinks different. Putin really claims in that article that Ukraine essentially it's in a part of Russia, a little bit remote, uh, so it has a little bit of its own peculiarity, but frankly, they're pretending to be something they're not, a separate independent nation. It's the first time we've seen him formulating his arguments so in such a bold and clear way, I'd say, but again, if you, you're carefully, uh, if you read carefully what he said uh, before, it's not, again, it's not unlike uh, what he previously claimed in the past. So throughout his rule, which at this point is 20 years, uh, Putin uh, has tried to, in one way or another, get Ukraine under control through uh, one of his leverage, uh, one of his tools in Ukraine was actually the president, ex-president Yanukovych, right. who you mentioned in the beginning. Uh, what changed now? 
why suddenly such a bold move by building these troops at the Ukrainian border? Uh, the problem, uh, as I argue, and I think it's quite um, uh, consistent with the evidence on the ground, is that over the last several years, but especially in the last year, in the last couple of years after President Zelensky uh, took power in Ukraine, he sees Ukraine quickly, quickly, essentially uh, fleeing uh, out. Uh, so essentially, he feels like Russia's leverage over Ukraine is is even weaker than it used to be before. And there are several reasons for that. Uh, first of all, um, Ukrainian collaboration with uh, the U.S., the military collaboration with the U.S. and NATO countries has really accelerated since 2018. Uh, actually, this is uh, Trump's achievement, the rare achievement of uh, the previous U.S. president. Wow. Uh, the so many achievements under Trump, really. Javelins <laughs> started being sent to Ukraine. This is the anti-tank missiles that are really important for Ukraine. Recently, Turkey has also been supplying drones, and drones actually to be quite effective in uh, even conventional warfare is the Nagorno-Karabakh war uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan have recently uh, demonstrated. So there's a really, he sees that uh, the country that he wants to ultimately get under control, right, is becoming more militarized. There is a lot of significant army uh, reform. And even if not formally, but informally, kind of getting closer to NATO. Uh, right. The second the second problem is, uh, in, in Putin's view, is the fact that Zelensky himself has been undertaking important reforms, and one of them is actually getting rid of uh, uh, the individuals or groups, uh, channels, uh, that are widely considered to be, again, Russia's, Russia's uh, asset, Russia's leverage over Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And one particular, one particular uh, prominent person in that regard is the Ukrainian oligarch, um, political uh, you can say a politician, uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, who um, is um, uh, in personal relationship with uh, Putin, uh, one can say Putin is a godfather of Medvedchuk's daughter, mm. allegedly, and a personal friend, as Medvedchuk has on several occasions described Putin. Uh, Medvedchuk is known for his uh, active opposition to Ukraine joining the EU, support of active pro-Russian position when it comes to uh, Ukraine's future. And uh, previously, the U.S. has have even sanctioned Medvedchuk for uh, stoking separatism in Ukraine. Okay. So um, again, Natalia will be probably able to develop a comment more on this, but overall, Medvedchuk really is widely recognized to be Russia's asset in Ukraine. And until recently, he sort of was uh, immune to political persecution in Ukraine. Uh, that has changed under Medvedchuk. La, oh, Zelensky, Zelensky last year. Uh, last year he started a very active campaign against Medvedchuk, sanctioning him, uh, putting him under a house arrest, and also uh, blocking several TV channels uh, that Medvedchuk um, indirectly owned uh, that were also widely used uh, by Kremlin to spread his propaganda in Ukraine. So, so, that that, course, so were, those, were those channels, I mean, were, what exactly were they spreading? You know, and uh, like, what kind of propaganda were they spreading in Ukraine? 
Well, to be honest, I am not. I was not part of their audience. But uh, based on what the the con uh, you know conventional narratives that Russia spreads, usually would be something uh, trying to tarnish uh, the West uh, to demonstrate that uh, the West is essentially uh, Ukraine is being used uh, by the West for its own purposes. That uh, that Zelensky is a tool, is a puppet. He is not right. independent. It's all in indirectly in one way or another in favor of the U.S. And of course, highlighting the 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 benefits of closer uh, of closer partnership with Russia, right, of course. And here we go and go into the third important element of this perceived uh, Kremlin failure in Ukraine. Uh, that's the control, the the DNR, Elena, the Donbas, um, Luhansk Republic's uh, situation. So um, since 2014-15, Putin really had uh, put a lot of hope in the Minsk agreements in Ukraine, where essentially hoping that by essentially forcing Ukraine to reincorporate uh, the separatist republics and incorporate them into Ukraine's political system, uh, the Kremlin will be able to assert, again, uh, exert leverage over can, Ukraine. Can you, can you explain just quickly what are the major, what were the major components of the Minsk agreement? Um, uh, that uh, these republics essentially will have a particular say, uh, so they will have this particular status that allow them some political uh, leverage over um, in Ukraine politics, right? They like will the have Donbass a particular region, like the more ethnically Russian regions. Uh, these are not just more well ethnically. Um, I'm, I'm always just a question, always question what it means to be ethnically Russian and okay. Ukrainians, but the those Donbass are. Region. Those are definitely the republics that are separatists that are now uh, now that uh, people of opposite views have uh, have left the, uh, this region. The Ukrainians who really feel very uh, passionate about the country that fled the, uh, the region. Now, of course, it's uh, highly penetrated by Russian security. Uh, these people are also uh, definitely brainwashed uh, by the Kremlin propaganda. And um, it's really hard to say at this point, right, to what extent the leaders, the so-called leaders, alleged leaders of these republics, they are independent or they're um, uh, Kremlin's puppets, because there's a lot of reasons to believe they're just, uh, again, assets uh, that have been imp imposed uh, by the Kremlin in order to uh, achieve its own goals in Ukraine. And the idea of the Minsk agreements that these republics will be incorporated into uh, Ukraine and eventually through, through, the, through the electoral process, right, they will have some representation in Ukraine's parliament, for example, and uh, because they will have also a special status, will have leverage over Ukraine's politics, okay. which for the for, um, uh, Russia is very important. It's somewhat ironic that as of now, uh, because of its policies in Ukraine, uh, Kremlin has actually helped uh, Ukraine's political system to become more consolidated, right? Because the regions with more separatist pro-Russian uh, sort of sentiment were either annexed uh, like Crimea or separated artificially from Ukraine. So that the Putin's own pro policies uh, kind so of actually... you're saying that Putin's own policies led the, the region that wasn't, you know, the Donbass and stuff to become more consolidated because the areas that yeah. were super pro-Russian have kind of unofficially broken off anyway, so then you can cons consolidate and become more democratic, like at its core. Pro-Western, more democratic, more pro-Western, very importantly, pro-EU. In that sense, uh, in a lot of ways, Putin definitely contributed to, like, again, consolidation of Ukraine um, as a nation around common values. And that he also sees in the polls. And the irony is that that this combination of these factors makes him extremely frustrated, right? He's sort of, he's, he's losing his leverage, his soft power over Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
and the only power that's left is cursive power, the hard power. And that's the one he's potentially uh, trying to use right now. So so you think in terms of why it's he's kind of lost all of these soft power mechanisms of influence and so he doesn't really see what else he can do besides exercise hard power. Is that kind of the conclusion? Um, or to? at least fresh threaten to exercise the hard power by hoping right. that the West and uh, Ukrainian politicians will be scared enough to make some important concessions, particularly when it comes to Minsk agreements. As to his own realization of the fact that he, he has lost his battle, at least in the short term, he literally writes that uh, in his article that I mentioned before on historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, he literally says that he becomes, uh, he realizes, he starts to realize that Ukraine doesn't really need, need the Minsk agreements. And I think he, he's right there. It's also interesting whenever we analyze Putin to kind of look at his history as a KGB officer um, as the Soviet Union was falling and having to you know, burn papers of the KGB and kind of how humiliating that was uh, and thinking about, you know, you know, it, it just always seems like he's mourned the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the breakup and kind of aspired towards territorial expansion or at least a sphere of influence that still encompasses a lot of the post-soviet countries completely true I, and uh, actually in my uh, hopeful upcoming work uh, it's under review currently uh, together with the co-author we show that up and 30 years after transition after 30 years after collapse of the soviet union um over 60 percent of russia's top 100 political elites have still their backgrounds in soviet nomenclature so wow. almost two thirds of Russian political elites have direct links for their own personal career or for their parental backgrounds to Soviet nomenclature. So it's not surprising that in a lot of ways we hear these overtones in his uh, claims, in his beliefs, right? Because he is himself directly sort of coming and the political elites in Russia, they, they come from that, they have that background. They have nothing else uh, essentially to offer right because they they know nothing else but the, so the irony is that putin is also um sort of doesn't like lenin he, he blames on lenin the creation of ukraine in that particular article so mm. he has sort of complicated relationship with uh, the soviet union so the soviet union uh was okay as long as it expanded but to the extent that early on the soviet union conducting conducted some policies that helped build a nationhood in the, the post-soviet space there he actually disagrees <laughs> So, so, okay, so where we're at now is that we've have, you know, the U.S. threatening sanctions, sending troops to, to um, Eastern Europe. The U.S. hasn't really truthfully made any concessions or the EU hasn't really made any concessions that he's looking for. Do you think that he'll actually invade or do you think this was all just a show of force to try to prompt concessions and he has no actual plans for invading? Uh, that's a difficult question, uh, the one that I think every single analyst uh, on Russia-Ukraine struggles these days. I actually even created the um, uh, list of possible scenarios that are likely to happen uh, recently, and I have a total of about perhaps eight or even nine uh, possible things for Putin that Putin could do based on uh, different analysts. Yeah, eight as of now. But uh, the problem is that if he backs down right now, uh, that's a little bit of a loss to his credibility image, right? It's it's not the last time Putin definitely has tried to use coercion. We can definitely be certain 
of it. But this time it was very unusual, massive buildup. And it's not very clear that the concessions that the West has offered and the West, uh, as we know, like from yesterday's discussions, right, for example, uh, offered to reconsider the missiles uh, deployments right, right, right. In, in Eastern Europe, for example, right? Um, and there it's not clear that those are going to be enough. I have to say by watching the Russian TV channels that over the last couple of one or two weeks, they slightly de-escalated the rhetoric. I visited Russia a couple of weeks ago. At the, at the time, all the uh, um, state-owned TV channels were about communicating this idea of, if need be, we will go to fight and we will show the Americans, the Ukrainians, that there's a true Russian spirit, you know, mm. essentially this very bold pro-war uh, propaganda and very Soviet uh, in, in its style. Mm. But uh, lately, a lot of um, uh, people who watch TV channels, the commentators, they actually noticed that the Kremlin has scaled down a little bit. I would also point out that uh, he, Putin definitely needs to visit his uh so-called friend, he calls him friend, uh, Xi Jinping uh, in China, and uh, certainly discussed this with him because China did not seem very happy about this promise of another war escalation. Uh, so if it's not complete escalation, which will be perceived as a weakness, and maybe not any bold action, I really doubt that he's ready to go all the way deep into uh, Ukraine uh, and occupying Kiev and uh, overthrowing Zelensky's government also. So what, what are we left with? I think there are several scenarios. First of all, continued sort of um, military buildup at the border to keep everybody um, everybody very on alert, very much worried. And eventually people will grow tired of it, right? Because it's just too much. Ukraine and right. Russia, let's face it. And and, and, um, and like how long does anything last in the news, right? It's already been almost a month at this point that the news it's is remarkable. Get tired of it too, frankly. It's remarkable how long this time around this whole uh, story has been in the headlines in the US, I have to say. And I thank the American audience for their continued e interest because it's a really important situation. We are facing the possibility of revising of the liberal international order. So it's really, it, I think it really matters. Can we can I just stop um, you right there? Because I think that's just a really important statement you just made that we're facing a revision of the liberal international order. So I just want people to reflect on that. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement um, of thinking. About if, Putin, if Putin achieves what he wants, right? But it's unlikely that he he's successful this time. Luckily, I'm actually quite happy by the uh, uh, about the way the the US administration has acted uh, late uh, recently so they they did not uh, provide uh, serious concessions they they actually showed a very um, resolute uh, resolve response although i do agree that the unity of the uh, european partners could have uh, been uh, stronger but to go back to the previous point like if it's not a full blown escalation if it's not uh, again a retreat what do we have left uh, either, again, this continuous military build-up tension on the border, waiting for everybody to get tired, and then perhaps making a move which may be, may be a further incursion into Ukraine. And by the way, looking at what, how Putin uh, part, uh, acted in the past, right, he doesn't like to be predict uh, predictable. He likes this element of uncertainty. He usually acts when everybody least expects it, right? That's partly his KGB background, partly the rational element, right? Because you don't want everybody to be prepared to actions. Uh, so that's one uh, possibility, and the recent ISW report, the Institute for the Study of War, actually outlines the possibility of uh, maybe more localized, more, more localized um, um, uh, operation, perhaps deployment of uh, Russian mechanized forces into Russian-occupied Donbas, and perhaps further a move into neighboring 
uh, neighboring area in Ukraine, for example, expanding uh, the area controlled by uh, the um, uh, separatists. That would be one possibility. So, expand, that, so essentially expanding into the region, but not saying we're annexing it like they did with Crimea. Um, it would just annexation. Uh, that's a widely divided issue in uh, Russia among the Russian experts. I frankly don't see immediate benefits for the Kremlin from annexing Donbas. Because first of all, it completely defeats the purpose that the Kremlin had from the start, right? Trying to plug it back into Ukraine and then using it in, as leverage over Ukraine. I think many Ukrainians will be frankly relieved if he was to annex uh, Donbass in some in in a, in a lot of ways, sort of solve this issue for them. Okay. And second of all, uh, that would make Russia itself violate the Minsk agreements and so eliminate this big moral argument that Putin holds over uh, Ukraine, accusing them uh, of uh, accusing Ukraine of violating the Minsk agreement. So that actually does not strike me as a very likely scenario, although certainly a possibility, especially keeping in mind this idea of regathering the post-Soviet space. So if Kremlin cannot reassemble all of the post-Soviet space, Ukraine and Belarus uh, and other countries together, maybe he can like bite off little pieces of the neighboring post-Soviet countries, like he bit off uh, South Ossetian Abkhazia from Georgia, maybe a little bit from uh, Ukraine, and then sort of recollected into one bigger quasi-Soviet uh, zombie. Although again, I, I do not, I don't Soviet zombie. Um, Maria, we, we just have a quick question from the chat. Um, someone's asking for clarification. They're asking, so do you think that Putin is currently acting out of strategic ambiguity in sending troops to the Ukrainian border without, while denying any intent to invade Ukraine? Like he's almost like wanting to keep us guessing. Is that part of the kind of? I think that's what, what he always does. Yeah, that's I think it's strategic ambiguity is a good term. I thank the commentator for that, and uh, that's what he always does. And if one, some people would argue, hey, how is that ambiguous when he's been building like these large-scale troops since April 2021 on Ukraine's border, right? How is that ambiguous to anybody? But uh, if you listen to military analysts, uh, like one of them, uh, a prominent expert Michael Kaufman, for example, who have yeah. really closely analyzed the situation, they actually say the way this deployment unravels does uh, have a lot of ambiguity in it, because the way they do it, uh, it's very hard to predict which area is going to be attacked. Like they do it sort of everywhere, all every pretty mm, so much that's every. Why they put it on the three sides of Ukraine versus in one tactical area. Yeah, including Belarus recently, they actually enhancing their presence in Belarus, huh. sending their Ros Guardian uh, soldiers and who, who not essentially, even even some Wagner um, private military contractors allegedly. Um, there, there were rumors about that. So uh, that makes uh, a lot of military analysts guessing, like as we do right now not being military analysts, but being analysts, uh, guessing what the real uh, purpose is. And last but not the least, I wanted to mention one more possible scenario. A lot of people start noticing uh, the possibility of um, possible escalation in the Balkans uh, when it comes to Bosnia, for example. Um, and uh, if something was to essentially uh, uh, happen there, uh, it's likely that the international attention, for example, will be distracted. And then uh, the Ukrainian uh, situation will provide some opportunities for Putin. But again, that's that's, Wait, that's are, a scenario are you saying that's... that he potentially could stoke some sort of uh, instability within the Balkans. Assist. I think the Balkans are quite <laughs> do not necessarily always need Russia's assistance to be uh, unstable. But certainly, it's not. It wouldn't be the first time that Russia interfered. Remember, 2016 when they tried to do a coup in Montenegro. 
So it wouldn't be the first time that Russia tried to stalk something in the Balkans. Currently, Putin has really deepened his uh, collaboration with Serbia, uh, with Vucic. So from that perspective, that's another possibility. Uh, Putin acts, acts liking unpredictable, uh, sorry, likes acting unpredictably. He and, likes to keep uh, people guessing. He likes to keep people guessing. That's part of his game. I think he really um, enjoys it in a lot of ways. And plus, it's really, it's really much more rational, right? It's less costly when your opponent is not prepared to what you're going to do. So from that perspective, I would be carefully watching uh, the situation everywhere because I frankly do not think the situation on Ukraine's border has been re resolved. Hmm. So last kind of question, I know I said I would get you out of here soon. Uh, you know, in the case of U.S. concessions, you know, you're saying that that our agreement saying that, OK, with regards to missile deployments in Eastern Europe isn't really enough of a, something to offer him in order for him to back down and still save face. What do you think that the U.S. slash EU slash NATO could offer him that might cause him to back down and still be able to save face? I think that so far, at least the U.S. in recent weeks uh, and months has been uh, doing quite a good job, a job combining uh, carrots and sticks. And the sticks here would be a threat of really serious and credible sanctions. So far, unfortunately, on the Russian uh, direction, the Biden administration has not been very uh, credible when it comes to sanctions. Instead, they lifted the sanctions over Nord Stream 2. They didn't really introduce what, any I serious... I was going to ask you, what, what was Nord, Nord Stream 2? I was actually wondering that gas pipeline uh, uh which okay. which is built to almost finished right to send essentially for russia to deliver the gas trade to germany and would make germany the major gas hub in europe uh, currently a lot of russia's uh, pipelines at legacy of the soviet time goes for eastern europe and mostly and importantly for ukraine and essentially the goal uh, that putin has here is to completely um close the Ukrainian direction when or limit, decrease the, uh, the gas um, being uh, provided to Europe for Ukraine. That way Ukraine loses a lot of um, revenues because uh, it, it gets some revenues for gas transit. And uh, by contrast, uh, will make more uh, Germany more dependent on Russia's gas supplies in a lot of ways that it's beneficial for Germany, but also for the Kremlin. It deepens uh, Kremlin's control over Germany. Uh, so that's the pipeline that the U.S. wanted to sanctions because there's no clear, uh, obvious need besides hurting Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, from the U.S. perspective. Uh, but uh, the Biden administration decided not to pursue the sanctions because the pipeline is almost built and they didn't want to spoil relations with Germany further. Then there were sanctions on Navalny, uh, regardless, uh, regarding Navalny poisoning and the use of prohibited chemical weapons, those were also not very serious. Mm. So, the, But recently that has changed, however. The Congress and the administration have been working on a really serious package of sanctions, which it seems to be uh, appears may, may be made quite credible uh, for the Kremlin. And those are sanctions that are going to really uh, hurt the Russian economy. That is in case something happens in Ukraine. So that's the sort of stick that should continue because Putin. Um, so you think Putin will react to stronger sanctions because he's going to be worried about us taking their economy? I think it will be one, one argue, one element. It's really it's a problem for the Russian population. And, and you can say yes, he's an autocrat. He doesn't care about the population. But even autocrats care to some extent, right? They didn't want a massive public protests in the streets, especially if something like really bad happens uh, to the economy. There might be unpredictable chain uh, reaction even for autocrats. Mm. 
but there's also needs to be um, a little bit of the pathway, I think, for him not to be completely coined, for Putin to be able to back down while safe in face. And from that perspective, I think NATO resilience and standing strongly to its standards, right, not accepting any of the ridiculous demand that Ukraine has been able, for example, backing down, back down to the 1997 uh, borders, uh, etc. Uh, there, I think they've been delivering quite uh, strongly, but I think uh, while at the same time offering some some space for cooperation, that offering him something essentially that he can use um, as, a, as a reason to back down. Um, so that, that all of that has been uh, good so far. What I think is also important is to realize that um, the Kremlin's insistence on incorporation of Donbass and Luhansk into Ukraine and the way uh, the Kremlin reads the Minsk agreements are really hurtful for our Ukrainians' future. There's rumors that uh, there was a pressure on President Zelensky on, uh, from the side of the U.S. administration to move forward with implementation of these agreements. There, I think it's important for the U.S. to realize that this is essentially um, uh, a win for the Kremlin. So there, how, I don't how think... Do you, how do you can... feel like it would, it would har harm normal Ukrainians or, you know, how do you feel like that would harm Ukrainians? Uh, Reincorporation re of hostile territories into, uh, that are essentially under de, de facto rights, uh, uh, informal control by the Kremlin, that will certainly provide a lot of leverage for the Kremlin to influence uh, Ukraine domestically. So from that perspective, I do not think the Minsk, Minsk agreements were essentially agreements that were signed when Ukraine was weak in an effort to stop the war from escalating further. And unfortunately, they contain some clauses, uh, sequence of clauses that's not very much in favor of Ukraine. So I actually, um, um, I think that uh, fully, fully implementing them uh, will not be fundamentally beneficial for Ukraine's future. And I think that's what the U.S. US uh, side should also realize eventually. Okay, great. Um, so anything else that you wanted to kind of, any comments that you haven't made on any other media networks that you, you kind of want to bring here in terms of your thoughts on the situation that I haven't asked you? Uh, any questions? Any important points? Yep. Well, I, I just want to thank the, uh, the US audience to uh, following uh, this issue that it remains really important and we are really facing fundamental attempt by um, by the side on the side of the autocrats right be it uh, Russia be it Belarus to challenge uh, challenge the West that's one of the additional attempts right we've seen uh, Belarus doing it for the incorporation with Russia for the migrant crisis uh, now there is a co coercive efforts right these are all meant to fundamentally undermine uh, the West and to make allow for the autocrats to be able to revise uh, the, the borders, the international, the sovereign borders of the countries as they see fit. That should not happen. And we should be, we should realize that this is a really, really important struggle that we are fighting right now and that China is also watching closely. So this is an important moment and the resolve and resilience of the US should be uh, really strong. I've seen a lot of comments of, by people saying, uh, in the United States saying, hey, it's not our fight, it's not our region, it's not our war, let them figure it out. I do not think it's the case. I think the this case will set a lot of precedents for the future, including China, right? And it's in our all, uh, all liberal democratic mind people's interest that this does not happen. Thank you so much, Maria. I have one last question because I said in the beginning that I would ask you. What are your thoughts on the broken promise? Do you think the U.S. really broke a promise that NATO would not expand eastward? How much do you think that this plays into everything? 
It's a hugely contested topic. I know even historians struggle to uh, answer. There were some uh, recently re uh, released archives that show that there might have been some debates on the um, uh, Western diplomat side about some promises. But the conventional assumption is that there were some promises made specifically with regards to DDR. The German Democratic Republic, that's the communist-controlled uh, uh, part of Germany, which when it merged with uh, the Feder Federative Republic of Germany, actually was promised, uh, it was promised to Gorbachev that it will preserve a special status uh, within NATO without, I think, missile deployments. And I think this particular status might have been preserved. When it comes to uh, non-expansion, I do not think this promise is actually hap uh, war happening to the extent that the Russian side uh, uh, tries, uh, tries us to believe. But even more importantly, like I lived in Russia at the time of early Putin, and I remember very clearly the discussions of Russia's, uh, Russia itself possibly joining NATO in the future. Those were unraveling Russia, all the way up on, Russia was talking about joining NATO itself. Russia, Russian politicians were talking about that. Mm -hmm. And Putin himself didn't have, in his public statements, didn't have much problem with NATO expansion during the early waves mm -hmm. of expansion, 2002, 2004. In his statements, he said, that's fine as long as, long as they don't maybe deploy some uh, serious missiles on these areas, like when NATO mm -hmm. expanded uh, to the Baltics. For example, there was not much problem because at the time, uh, Russia was actually still moving in more pro-Western direction. And I think it's very important for our audience to understand that the whole problem is not so much about NATO expansion, but because of the changing, uh, changing perception, changing st stances of the Russian leadership, one uh, perception of Russia's future and Russia's role in the world order as they become more emboldened on the international stage, I feel like the legacy of the, the Soviet the Soviet background so sort of jumped in. And uh, Putin also, it's also true, he felt he was not very fairly treated at some point. But most importantly, it's Putin who changed, not NATO. So fascinating, Maria. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for staying all this time to educate American audiences. And, you know, I think, you know, my hope is that you know, this is not Afghanistan. It's not a part of the world that I think people were kind of like, what are we doing in Central Asia? But I think that strategic interests for the U.S. in Europe are so clear and our allies with the Europeans are so, um, so strong that I don't think that we will back down on this issue or just say, oh, forget it. Like, we'll, we'll leave it. Um, you know, the question of sending sending troops to fight the Russians is different, but it kind of sounds like it's not going to come to that. Fingers crossed. Good to hear that. All right. Thank you so much, Maria. Have a great night and appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Take care. Well, that was Maria Snegovaya. She's been in foreign policy, the New York Times, um, sure, the BBC, Vox, in addition to some anthropolitics. So really happy that she was able to come on the show tonight because she is in high demand. And it sounds like she has thoroughly evaluated every possible scenario that Putin could take with consideration of Putin being a rational actor. It's also sounding like Putin is just, I mean, the man has a very big ego and he likes to look tough and he's not feeling so tough right now. And so he's using military force to show how tough he is uh, in the wake of the fact that all these countries are wanting to join the West or wanting to join NATO or wanting to join the EU. And so he's using military posturing as a way, I think, to look tough. Uh, so I wanna bring in our next guest without further ado. So Natalia Antonova, uh, 
I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, Natalia Antonova is a Ukrainian-American writer and investigator who spent seven years working in Moscow and now lives in D.C. She's also been in Foreign Policy magazine, The Guardian, uh, a lot of other uh, very established foreign policy publications. And I'm really excited to have her tonight. So welcome to the show, Natalia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. So before we dive into policy issues, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about your personal background. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I was born in Kiev, so I'm actually from this part of the world that is currently being threatened by, um, as I like to call him now, the the revanchist goblin in the Kremlin. And <laughs> I grew up in I grew up. Yeah, it's you have to try to take them down a notch, right? Even when it's yeah. really bad, and they might bomb your family. But um, I grew up in North Carolina, and I spent about a decade abroad as a journalist and a, and a writer. I was in the Middle East before I spent a very memorable seven years in Moscow. You know, I know I didn't send you like a very exhaustive bio. I'm not much of like a bio writer, but I was there for seven years. I had, you know, Putin um, and his team actually shut down my newspaper while I was working over there, while I was the editor in chief of it. And uh, I even had like a yeah, I also did playwriting while I was there, you know, because it's one of these things I do, you know, Maria's you're very like academic, very serious, rational guest, and I'm more of like the wild card, right? So I did do, I was, a, I was a playwright for a while in Moscow, and I remember distinctly in 2014 when the war kicked off, um, and I had a premiere at a theater that I loved, and, you know, I'm a Ukrainian-American writer, and, you know, the the play wasn't even about the war, honestly. It was about a lot of like my issues with the way that Russia was go was was headed towards at the time. You know, I think it was kind of a very um, unfortunately a very prophetic play in some ways. But they, you know, they they killed my premiere, and oh my they gosh. said so you didn't even get to do the said, premiere of the play. No, 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 and it was sold out, and then they killed it, and then you know I started asking That's questions. So disappointing. And they we were just like, we can't tell you. We can't tell you oh why gosh. this happened. And, uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was a very colorful time for me in Moscow. And then uh, I came back in 2017 um, back stateside. It was just like done at that point. Uh, it was just too much. And I've been a journalist here ever since. I have my own newsletter. I mostly focus on uh, OSINT and geolocation in my newsletter because I was, I, was, I was Bellingcat's editor for two years. Uh, when I first moved to DC and I developed an interest in the investigative process. And uh, I mean, I kind of started it back when I was living in Moscow and getting harassed by a lot of these people, you know, because I was Ukrainian American and because I was kind of a thorn in a lot of people's sides. Um, and you, you, you start noticing that you're, you're being watched and you have weird emails and you get strange phone calls from uh, uh, numbers or like no, no caller ID numbers. And yeah, you know, so I've been I've been like slowly like feeling the heat, feeling the pressure build over the last uh, few years. I guess it's been seven years really when it all started. And um, while I was at Bellingcat, you know, I, I Maria was just talking about how she was in Moscow recently a couple of weeks ago. I can't go. Uh, if I if I were to go, I would end up, you know, in La Fordova. I would end up um, somewhere not very pleasant in a Fezbeh. Um, prison oh or detention gosh. center because with a lot of the work that I, I did and a lot of the work that Bellingcat did, you know, it really, really made the Russian security state very mad because we were looking at their assassin networks in Europe. We were looking at what they had done 
in uh, Britain with the poisoning of Skripals, what they had done with assassinations in Germany. So a lot of this stuff, you know, um, A, obviously it's very personal for me, uh, but B, it's also, um, I think it's indicative uh, and kind of has built up to this current moment that we're all now witnessing where, um, as Maria, I think, said, and she put it really well, you have these autocrats who want to dictate terms now, and it's not enough for them to oppress their own people. Like that is no longer, it's not, it's not as fun anymore, right? And I think they really <laughs> want to dictate terms to Europe. They want to make people feel unsafe. I can tell you that, you know, having worked with a lot of people who uh, investigate Russia and what goes on in Russia, you know, if you go to Europe nowadays, um, I was advised by um, someone here, uh, it just, it must have been, it was before the pandemic, so it would have been like a couple of years ago, but I was advised like, you know, hey, like if you go to, if you go to Europe, you know, you, you know, your safety, like you should not be posting on social media where you're located, you know, like don't, don't do this, don't do that, because uh, it's so highly penetrable now. Uh, and that's true for Britain, and that's true for Germany, and of course that's true for Ukraine. And I think Ukraine is really the jewel in the crown. And I really liked what Maria said about, you know, frankly, an obsession with right. the country. Right. Um, there is an obsession and it's an obsession on a, like on an official level, but also on a personal level. If right. you, if you've ever heard about Putin's great cardinal, Vladislav Serkov, he's like not really in the news much nowadays, but this was the man who years ago, um, um, what I, he said something that has really stuck with me through all this. He was he was talking about Ukrainian women and how they're ripe for the taking, um, and it's, and it's like they have like you know because you have to understand that like Russia is run by like a very small group of creepy guys, right? Like that's that's the structure. And then you have all their middle managers, and you have the middle middle managers, and you have this very sort of um, as I would describe unwieldy and uh, highly. Uh, corrupt and uh, not very like well thought out federal system. But basically, power is concentrated in the hands of very few people who are all kind of scurrying around Putin's right. throne. Right, right. And these people do have an unhealthy obsession with the Ukrainian nation. Um, and I can tell you again, I was born in Kiev. Uh, most of my family spoke Russian, for example. Um, my Ukrainian relatives, when I was growing up in the United States, I really didn't have that much contact with them. We really didn't see each other much. So I actually lost uh, my Ukrainian language. Like I had to relearn it since then. Mm -hmm. And I never felt uncomfortable or weird, uh, say, speaking Russian in Ukraine. I never felt uncomfortable or weird, like hanging out with my relatives from Western Ukraine. And uh, but they're but in Russia, of course, they're, they paint this picture of Ukraine. Um, and it's a very interesting duality to it. On one side, it's like a country of bumbling idiots, right? Like stupid little cousins, like little, our little brother, who can't do anything right, can't run their own country, look at how corrupt it is, look at all the things that are wrong with it. But on the other hand, Ukrainians are these bloodthirsty devils, and they're very dangerous, and they're very Russian national so, so, idea. So, they're, so you're bumbling idiots and also <laughs> bloodthirsty. And what there's the yeah, I, I want to go back it. to can I'm just going to stop you for one second because there's so much here. But in your article in foreign policy, you talk about and you just started to go into this. And I, I really want to dig into this because, you know, it's the show is also about women's rights. You say um, that you Ukrainian, they think that Ukrainian women are hot, promiscuous and ripe for the taking. And then you say a certain Russian official told me as much when he slid into my DMs in 2014, just as the Russians were brutalizing Ukrainians while fervently de denying they were even there. Yeah. 
Can you explain yeah, that story? Uh, so he 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 messaged you on Instagram. Like, can you explain this? He messaged me on on Twitter. He messaged me on Twitter. And this was the um, general that you were talking about, or this was a different somebody. Uh, else? No, this this was somebody in the foreign in the foreign ministry in the Russian foreign ministry. Um, and I had previously uh, had it actually an incident with this guy where we were at uh, I believe the, the head of the UN was visiting at the time, and I was there with an you know an official delegation. Like we were like the you know, the people who were running their English language newspaper and the, the foreign ministry guys were there. And this this is the, the exact same man. And I was, you know, it was May in Moscow. It was a beautiful day. I was wearing a dress that was um, had short sleeves. And he starts running a finger up and down my arm and saying, well, you know, we, we read all of your news. Uh, we read all of your tutorials, read your newspaper very carefully. It's so good to have, a, you know, it's so good to have a, a, a young wife and mother. I was married at the time, I'm not anymore. But it was so good to have a young wife and mother in charge of this newspaper and you're Ukrainian and you're American. And this was the same guy, you know, so I would say, and I've had a lot of creepy moments in, in the Russia happen to me as a result. That's so of gross. Being- I'm so like, I'm so like yeah. creeped out by that. It's like unbelievable. This was definitely a memorable moment. Like it has stuck with me because I, when I sat down to write this article, I just like, when, when he said to me, I was just like, this is, this is sick, but it's also, it's definitely an attitude that they have even on the official level. So, so it's, it's beyond just being a woman. It's the fact that you're a Ukrainian woman, that you're like, kind of like a second class citizen, like somebody, you know, sexually promiscuous type of, you yeah. know, oh. and desperate and desperate, right? Because Ukrainian women are generally tend to be less, uh, you know, the ones who, especially the ones who go to Moscow to work, they tend to be not as economically privileged mm-hmm. as local women. So uh, people might feel that they can take advantage of them. Um, so, you know, it was, it's just one of these things where I think the, the Russian obsession with Ukraine, it's so multifaceted. It has mm-hmm. so many different aspects to it. And a lot of those aspects are quite sick, uh, unfortunately. And I mean, I, and I say this with great regret, you know, it's not my, like, I don't hate Russians. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, uh, I love Russian right, culture. But, like, I was but a- the general, I mean, the general mood and sentiment and it's bad. It's just, it's painful. It's, it's, it's especially painful for me on a personal level. You just, you can't you want to be able to, you know, not be hated and to have a normal relationship. Yes. And as you know, and as Maria was saying, there was a time when Putin was different and it's true that he has changed. And then the entire, frankly, crappy system that he built has changed around him, you know, because it's easier for everyone what, what, to what kind of make What do you think was, was, was the reason for his change? You know, you, you were born there when you were younger. What what do you think was part of that? You know, I, there's lots of factors to it. I do think um, there, you know, obviously the Iraq war had to have played a part. I can't, we can't deny it. Like there's, and I, I don't want to compare Ukraine to Iraq. A lot of people are doing that right now. That's BS. It's not true. But, you know, I think there was one aspect of it. Uh, I also think that, you know, uh, the the death of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, uh, I think that really, and, and, and this is going later, you know, but it's, I like to think of like lack of accountability as a progressive disease, right? The more someone stays in power, the more calcified they become. Mm. And I have a helicopter overhead now. Welcome to DC. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, um, you know, I just, I think that there were lots of issues. You know, I think he had a famous speech in Munich that he delivered. I think it was in 2005. And the Munich speech, uh, which is, you know, a lot of Russian analysts, like, um, I mean, pro-Putin analysts, they love it. You know, they say it's great. But if you read that speech, you can see how he's becoming peevish 
and he feels that he's not being understood by the West and he has all these demands, but he's being ignored. You know, I think that I, I really don't, um, I wouldn't fault, uh, I think that here's, I think that American triumphalism after the fall of the Soviet Union obviously played a role in helping someone like Putin come to power. And I think that that's something that we should own and consider as we move forward in whatever way, you know, whatever happens, we should think about that. But I do think that, you know, in terms of George W. Bush, I think that uh, Putin had liked him. Uh, I think that they had a rapport. I do think that that there's just, again, it's so hard for me to focus on one aspect of it, but I do think that more recently Gaddafi really influenced Putin. I think based on his statements and just based even on the body language, and I'm sorry I have to sit there and analyze it, but this is what we do. I think he really uh, saw himself as someone who Gaddafi understood. And I think that he felt horrible when Gaddafi died. And I think that he felt powerless and just unable to stop it and didn't really care much about what Gaddafi was really doing to the people of Libya because that's not an, a part of his calculus, right? Right, right, right. Um, the way that these people usually make their calculus is that they will say, well, it would have been worse if Gaddafi hadn't been there. That's their view. That's how, that's how they view it. So with Gaddafi's death, I think that, you know, why did we see and still continue to see Putin's support of Bashar al-Assad in Syria? It's because... Um, Putin wanted to make up for his own kind of like feelings of powerlessness and feelings that Russia had been sidelined, sidelined in a lot of these processes. And By uh, I'm saying like, their power elsewhere, like in Syria. Yes. And, and sticking it to the Americans at every turn, you know, there's such a, such a buildup of resentment there. It's almost like a dam that broke eventually. Mm. And it's, it's really sad because especially in Syria, Putin could have easily force a diplomatic solution in Syria. He had the leverage, he had the opportunity. Years ago, he had that opportunity. And what did he do? No, he wanted, he just, no, just make the Americans suffer, make them pay for my, my perceived grievances, real or perceived, and let's just hammer down the civilian population, torture, murder, bombings. Right. Uh, level it wasn't even like hurting, I mean, that's the thing that kills me about Syria. He wasn't, wasn't hurting the Americans. Like, he was hurting, I mean, people were just being yeah. murdered in mass. Like, it was, yeah. it was just uh, so unbelievably horrifying. And, yeah, well, it, it just, that's, that's what he does. And that's why it's so scary for anybody from Ukraine watching him now, because again, Russia goes in and levels the grid square. And obviously, Ukrainian deaths would mean more to Russians than Syrian deaths, unfortunately, just because we're neighbors and, you know, we know each other uh, better. But at, at the same time, it's just their entire doctrine, you know, look at what they did back in Groz Grozny even, you know, and I'm, mm. it's a whole other bo uh, can of worms, but you just, there's not a whole lot of regard for individual life. Um, and, and human rights and anything that's, you know, it's more about strategic grandstanding and power playing. Yeah, and you and if you if you care about human rights, you're weak to someone like Putin. You are weak, and he will use that against you. So it's a very sad state of affairs. I sincerely, you know, I really want to hope that, like me as the paranoid and kind of like more focused on the dark energy of this regime. I really hope I'm wrong. I hope Maria's right. I hope that it kind of all simmers down and the big baby in the Kremlin gets what he wants. Um, but I don't know. I do think that because he's been in power for so long and also because there is a mood and a sense in Russia that a lot of Ukrainians, millions of Ukrainians would welcome them as liberators, this could actually still get very bad. Yeah, so I want to go to back to that last point because you do point that out within your article as well that, that there is this, so in your article you kind of talk about that Russia's kind of 
made it seem as if the Ukrainians are waiting to be liberated and join, you know, their rightful place with Russia. Is that that's the sentiment that you've seen? I've, I've been seeing it for years. Mm. Um, and it's I, I do think that, you know, the problem is who is advising Putin, right? For example, the Russian foreign ministry and the people who work there do not believe this, right? Uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, is not, he does he wouldn't, he might say it, you know, to please his boss or whatever, but he doesn't really believe that he is a very professional man and they, they're not going to claim that. But there are other forces at play in Russia. There are other people who have Putin's ear. Uh, we know that his circle has grown much smaller over the years. We, in fact, we know that Lavrov was kind of embarrassed and weirded out when they first invaded Ukraine because he had been cut out of the entire process. The Russian foreign ministry was just kind of told, well, this is the new normal. You deal with it. Um, so I just think that, you know, and it's, again, such a great shame because you have a lot of great professionals in Russia, you know, including diplomats and scientists and actors and whatnot. And it's all, all that potential is being wasted because, again, there is a small group of people who think of themselves as virtually demigods, who control the resources and control everything. And they're the ones uh, who have Putin's ear and that's his small little, you know, his, his little circle. Um, and it's just not, it's, it's, it's not a good way to run any country. It's especially a bad way to run the biggest country in the world, but this is just what we have right now. And I don't want to overplay the irrationality, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like with the Boeing. Do you remember when they shot down the Boeing over Ukraine in, in 2014 in yep. the summer? Mm -hmm. Nobody nobody wanted to shoot down that Boeing, right? The Russians didn't want this calamity to happen, you know? they. I don't know if they necessarily care about all the poor people who were killed, but I do think that you, you could even tell again with Putin's, even his body language when he first made a statement about it, you can tell in the confusion uh, just in Moscow at the time. I was in Moscow at the time. It was... Um, the the propagandist press that didn't know what to make of it essentially uh but it happened and then what did they do they just decided okay we have a strategy we're just going to deny you know deny 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 look what's that over there you know we don't know it was hillary clinton it was the space aliens it was <laughs> jewish space aliens, whatever it was just pile it all on there deny 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 and i think that in this situation especially what's happening in ukraine is that you could have some kind, something come out of the left field, right? Some surprise that nobody is anticipating, whether it's Zelensky or Biden or Putin. Some something surprising will happen. The Russians will react, and then you could have potentially you could have a lot of bloodshed. And I'm just hoping that that horrific scenario does not repeat itself in any way, shape, or form now. So something else that you mentioned that was really interesting is talking about the Jewish component of Zelensky and like how there's this like kind of anti-Semitic Jewish, you know, conspiracy theory running around Russia. Can you explain that a little bit more? It's really interesting because, you know, there's always anti-Semitic conspiracies everywhere. Right. But it's a really interesting way that the Russians have kind of adapted it. So even before Zelensky was elected, you know, and it's true, Ukraine does have problems with neo-Nazis that are running around, you know, no more so that I think than Germany, they're just more integrated in Ukraine, but they're around. And Ukrainians still overwhelmingly voted for a Jewish president and, you know, wanted to have them there. Uh, but the thing is, in Russia, is that they tend to, they kind of concocted this boogeyman who is both Nazi and Jewish. There's actually a term for it in Russia, Zhidabanderovitz. So it's a, Zhid is like a, uh, it's a slur against Jews, and Banderovitz are the people who were associated with Nazi collaborators in Ukraine. So you have uh, a, a Nazi Jew 
essentially the nazi jew now controls ukraine that's the, the conspiracy nazi jew, which is also the nazi bizarre because it doesn't make any sense together <laughs> it makes no sense and a jew they will even, they will even they will even say it's a, it, it's gay nazi jews at times you know because ukraine allows pride parades now some limited pride parades that they have to protect uh but they do happen and so it's gay nazi jews uh doesn't make any sense to you and me really but if you're you know, in Russia for a while and you keep hearing it on TV, you might start believing it. You know, propaganda does work. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> There's not a lot you can say about it, right? It's just sort of like, yeah, this so is weird. insane. Um, so, you know, I mentioned in the beginning in my intro that, you know, a third of Ukrainians said they would take up arms against Russia if Russia invaded. What What is this? I don't know if you have, you know, friends or family still in Kiev. Like, what is the, the sentiment in Ukraine right now about what's going on? Um, there's lots of preparations being made. Uh, people have started to, like, check out where their local bomb shelter is, uh, evacuation routes. Uh, I have my eldest aunt is actually disabled. Uh, she's in Kiev, so we, you know, we've been having this conversation about who gets to, if there's evacuation, like who gets to leave, who gets to stay. Obviously, her younger sister, my second oldest aunt, said, "I'm not going anywhere. We, she can't be moved, like at all." We've already had this discussion with the doctors, for example. So aunt doesn't want to leave her sister. My cousins aren't going to leave her mom. Uh, then there's other people who have small children, so you have to have considerations. You know, have some like. We've been talking about, okay, what kind of like non-perishable goods should everybody stock? Uh, diapers, obviously, are a worry at a time like this, always. So you're just kind of like, people are just kind of like going through, you know, these plants. You know, because again, like, it, you'd rather be paranoid and not have anything happen than kind of show, wake up one day completely unprepared and then right. the worst happens. Right, So Absolutely. a lot of people have been... Kind of, and there's lots of civil society as well in Kiev, especially, and in other parts of uh, uh, Ukraine, including places like Kharkiv and Lviv, obviously, with people trying to potentially, you know, prepare for the worst, just being aware how to leave the city, um, where to hide, um, and and so on and so forth. So, I don't know what's going to happen again i want maria to be right i want there nothing big to happen but i do know that people are preparing for a potential disaster uh, do you think that you know when the, you know people say they are going to take up arms that there will be a substantial amount of ukrainians despite the imbalance in terms of the military might of russia versus ukraine that will take up arms to fight against putin and putin's troops um, you know, Ukraine is awash in weapons, um, and a lot of it, it's not quantifiable. You can't exactly put a number on it, but ever since the war broke out, Ukraine has been awash in weapons. Weapons have become much more normalized in Ukrainian society. You know, my, my grandpa was, uh, he was a, you know, retired Soviet general. My, my, my dad was uh, a naval infantry officer, so we always had weapons in the house, but that was not the norm, um, especially in Ukraine. You know, Ukrainians are very, like, I don't know, like, I don't mean to generalize to all Ukrainians, but we're kind of like a like a happy party culture, you know, in, in a way. Like, it's not like we're not really big on guns like Americans are, for example. But since the war broke out, all of a sudden, a lot of my friends own guns hmm. and they're just like, well, just in case, better own a gun. And, um, and guns specifically and, with regards to Russia. That's the... Yeah, well, that was that was the kind of the tipping point. And then, of course, when you realize that your neighbors are getting armed, you're thinking, OK, I want to be armed now, too. So there's a domino effect. To this. 
I can't quantify it. I can't tell you uh, exactly what the numbers are. I don't. I think that even a Ukrainian policymaker would struggle to give you numbers. But I do think guns have become much more normalized in society. Also, many more women um, have been have been joining the armed forces. They're also uh, women did have to register now for a draft. We, we had a they had an order come down where I think I don't know if my cousins went. And, I'm pretty sure they went and registered. So you know it's. I don't know, I can't place a number on it, but I do think that there will be a lot of resistance. I, if Russians are stupid and cruel enough to go into the cities, you're gonna see a lot of urban warfare and you're going to see a lot of videos similar to Syria. You're going to see carnage on social media. You're going to see uh, phone videos of what is going down. Um, again, that is the nightmare scenario. That is the worst right. scenario. That's what, what, what do you think? I mean, what do you think after listening to Maria kind of talk through all these scenarios, you know, the Balkans and uh, what, what do you think that is the most likely thing to happen based on you, you know, living in Russia and getting your premiere shut down? <laughs> I'm still sad about that. As a former actress, yeah. I'm very sad. I would have been yeah. very disappointed if on opening night I couldn't perform. <laughs> Not bitter at all. Yeah, I would have been so pissed. Um, but yeah, I mean, what what do you think the most likely course of action is for, for Putin? You know, I don't know. I have no idea. I always bet on the irrational. I bet on something weird happening and throwing this entire thing off balance and then us having to develop a new calculus. That's usually my bet, especially with Russia, because uh, with Russia, it's interesting how time works over their political time, especially. It's, it's slow and nothing happens for a while and then it speeds up very quickly and all this crap go, goes down like very fast. So I think I'm betting on something weird happening and we might see a de-escalation based on that. Um, I do think, I think it's encouraging that I think they now might have realized that they really will get cut off from SWIFT, right? Um, I, it's, there's been talks about that. I know I in my capacity as a, someone who you know, writes about Russia, I have said, okay, look, put the SWIFT thing on the table and all of a sudden, uh, Putin's friends are going to- Can you explain to our audience what SWIFT is? Okay, so it's a, it's a global banking system. So basically, uh, you know, there's a reason that, you know, if you're in America, you can't send money to Iran directly, right? Because Iran is cut off from SWIFT and uh, the global banking network, and it does impact their economy. It does make life very difficult for them. And the SWIFT shutdown has absolutely been discussed and kind of trotted out as a potential hardline sanction against Russia as a whole, not a targeted sanction, but everybody's now affected by it. Right, because nobody can get money from abroad. No, you can't. And uh, Russian banks, you know, uh, if you look at the numbers, I think the most they do business with is Germany and the U.S., uh, so we would we would also have some effects from that, but we could easily absorb that. Both we and Germany could easily absorb those effects. Russia would not, you know, Russian businesses would not easily absorb it. And this any kind of swift shutdown, I think, would result in a lot of potential street protests as well, because you really can't live your life. You know, like Russia is in many ways is is integrated and it's uh, it has a very urban population. It has a very educated population. And um, these people are just not going to be happy. So hopefully, maybe with them coming to this conclusion that look, Swift will get shut down, maybe Putin's friends will have these conversations with him and say it's not worth it. Um, and it would be great, again, as Maria said, it would be a big relief for most of Ukraine if they just annex the Donbass, just let it be their problem now, 
you you broke it, you buy it. Okay. So you, <laughs> so you, so you think most Ukrainians wouldn't actually have an issue with um, Russia taking the Donbass or just annexing the Donbass? Not, uh, n- not at this point. You know, most people have left. Most people have fled um, the Donbass who disagree. Obviously, there are helpless older people in that area that can't leave or won't leave. There's a lot of vulnerable people. There's addicts. You know, there's some people who, uh, you know, in mental institutions that we've heard about. At the same time, guess what? If it gets annexed, then Ukrainians can say, well, great, Putin's taking care of them all now. He's got more money. He's got, you know, his healthcare system. Cool. Those people are taken care of. It's, uh, you know, we're not morally responsible anymore. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's going to happen. I know there's proponents of this. There are some Russian nationalist proponents of this idea of the annexation of the Donbass. But again, as Maria pointed out, uh, what would Russia and what would the Kremlin specifically get out of it? It, it, it could be a face-saving tactic, but it's not a financially um, uh logical one let's put it this way so i i do think that they're not going to do it uh, uh another thing you could see is more stuff going down in crimea and i think um and by stuff going down there's a range of things that can happen in crimea including them just really militarizing that entire peninsula um and I, i'm not going to get into like the details of that but there's a lot that they can do with with regard to crimea um and in terms of their i believe it's in terms of their either water or electricity supply i would have to look that up though but also they might want to establish and they might move to establish big permanent bases in belarus because alexander lukashenko the belarusian dictator he has long COVID. His health is not good. This is why he's been flying to meet with Putin. And it's a it's like a big open secret, I think, in, in Intel at this point, that this man is seriously ill. Um, and he has his favorite son that he wants to pass his legacy on to his favorite son. And this is why his favorite son attends all these meetings with Putin. It's a bit Game of Thrones-ish and creepy, mm-hmm. but it's a real concern for Lukashenko, who wants his son to inherit the kingdom. And I do think that with with that in mind, Lukashenko keeping that in mind, he might just allow Putin to do whatever he wants in Belarus. That's another possible scenario where we might, Mm. to avoid bloodshed, some kind of big situation, but also to save face, they might just entrench themselves in Belarus and keep pointing their guns across the border. So Yeah, that's so interesting, especially considering that Belarus has had these massive protests, obviously against Lukashenko, to think about like in that in that scenario, Lukashenko dies and then his son takes over. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I don't know if it, they would frankly last. Um, his son would last without Russian support because the, the, no, the public in Belarus is, is already beyond pissed off at Lukashenko and he's done such horrible god-awful, you know, human rights violations, abuse, killings, torture to Belarusians just for protesting against his falsified bullshit election when Svetlana Tikhonovskaya actually won, that I, I don't think that the Belarusian people would would take too kindly to his son taking over and would would not, you know, but, but it's an interesting proposition because if Russia was there, it would be much harder for the Belarusian people to kind of revolt and take over the government. Yeah. It would be much harder. And again, if you look at Russian nationalism and the kind of the strain of thought that they tend to pursue, I've I've seen this quoted by a famous Russian cleric. They say that Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine are like the Holy Trinity. They're meant to be together. And if you take Belarus, you know, even symbolically takes Belarus, um, what is what is going to happen to Ukraine? You know, we don't know, but obviously Ukraine is going to have to fight like hell to survive either way, I think, whether it's 
military or, you know, in terms of the economy, in terms of anti-corruption, in terms of, you know, uh, a freer and uh, more equitable society. I think Ukraine is well on that path. And as Maria points out, it has been really integrating itself more with Europe and it is improving, I think, as a country. Not, you know, not in terms of corruption. I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. But I think in terms of just even the national spirit and people, you know, being proud of being Ukrainian, for example, Putin has really done a lot of people a favor by attacking. A lot of people have suddenly realized, oh, crap, I'm actually Ukrainian and I might get annihilated from here. Like this is, you know, I don't I don't stand for this anymore. So. So it's I do think that yeah, so it's worked against him in the sense of that it's, it's consolidated Ukrainian national pride. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen it with the, my father's generation, even, you know, people who were Soviet military officers who were all, you know, thank God, you know, my father passed away last year. I'm, you know, it's horrible, but I'm glad he's not seeing this stupid mess. But all of his friends, you know, they're ready to go fight the Russians and they served with Russians for many years. Wow. And again, that, that is Putin's doing. That is something that this man did. It did not have to come to this, but he did it. Well, I think that's a great place to end, Natalia. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and for sticking around and just for, you know, providing such a, I think, a really great counter to Maria in terms of from, you know, theoretical and your background and uh, kind of really laying out, I think between the two of you, we've really laid out all of the options of what might happen. And also, you know, I, my heart goes out to the U Ukrainians. I mean, I can't imagine you know, pre preparing for war, it almost sounds, it just reminds me of the Holocaust of like all these Jews that said, oh, well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then all of a sudden they're in concentration camps. And so I think, you yeah. know, that, you know, there's a lot of Ukrainian Jews still that I'm sure remember the Holocaust yeah. as well. And that that's what happened then. Um, so, yeah. you know, the ones that survived. And, and so you can't just, you know, sit there and, and pretend that it's, everything's going to be okay. But, it, you know, it must be just incredibly frightening there right now. Um, yeah. And and my heart goes out to you and your family and your disabled aunt. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm also crossing my fingers that we're, we're able to give Putin, you know, something to his liking or at least, uh, you know, threatened to crash his economy enough that he decides not to move forward with any sort of um, large scale invasion or even limited invasion. Yes, I, I hope so. And it was great to be on this show. It was great to follow Maria. She's wonderful in her role. And I feel like we do tend to make a great, we compliment yeah. each other in <laughs> really interesting ways. So that was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me and have a great night. You too, Natalia. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Well, that was Natalia Antonova. Um, she is a commentator for Foreign Policy Magazine, The Guardian, and many other illustrious uh, foreign policy publications. She was a journalist and also a playwright that lived in Russia, but is originally from Kiev. And so, you know, she gave us a more of a little bit of a wild card scenario. I thought that last piece about Belarus was really interesting of thinking, is Russia going to entrench itself is, uh, into Belarus as another potential option uh, to, to kind of keep the fire on? And I think what's overwhelmingly clear uh, between the two of them is that there is this unhealthy Russian obsession with Ukraine of, of having Ukraine, of absorbing Ukraine, of it being, you know, of it being part of Russia, that it's, you know, it's, it was destiny. The, the, um, the last thing she was saying about the tripartite between Belarus, Russia and Ukraine, and that this particular country holds a lot of weight for Putin. Um, so, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope that Russia does not 
decide to invade the country and that we do not see massive carnage, but it also sounds like the Ukrainian people are ready to fight and have taken up arms and are preparing for that possibility. And hopefully the U.S. will you know, support them in whatever way that we can. So that's it tonight for Samantha Politics. If you liked our show, please share it. If you think this subject is important, we are, you know, very small production. Um, I want to thank Zach from Stream Inspectors for producing this show. Stream Inspectors are the leaders in live stream production. Uh, but please support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash samanthapolitics1, and we'll post that in the chat. But uh, consider supporting us for the price of less than a Starbucks coffee per month. For $3 a month, you can support our efforts to cover foreign policy and national security issues and educate uh, people about these important issues and also highlight the voices of women in foreign policy and national security who are not usually the people that are, are tasked and brought on shows like this. So again, share, please subscribe on, on YouTube and think about subscribing on Patreon. We would really appreciate it. I also want to thank our sponsor, Trillium Creative Solutions. Trillium Creative Solutions is headed by an amazing woman named Tori Graf, who is this creative, unbelievable visionary. Uh, they do a ton of learning and development programs, specifically for Microsoft and lots of other companies, uh, marketing and branding, creative production. So check out Trillium. We'll also put them in the chat. And then lastly, my company, Empower Global. We do diversity, equity, and inclusion training for global companies and run a women's leadership challenge to train women to be leaders like Natalia and like Maria. So all of those links will be in the chat next week. Be sure to tune in. We have another awesome show coming up on immigration in America and what can the U.S. do better with regards to immigration and how do we handle uh, the influx of migrants that are coming across the southern, southern border in a humane way? What do we do about immigration within the U.S.? So next week, 7 p.m., be here. And I'll see you then. Take care tonight. This is Samantha Carlin signing off. Good night, everyone.